We tell stories so grand of this vast, timeless land, and they call it Sunday with Macca. Oh, g'day, Macca. This is Mick Barclay from Wee War here. G'day, Mick. I'm actually in Saskatchewan in Canada and a little bit isolated where we are, so I've downloaded an app and I've been listening to New England Northwest ABC and thought, oh, I'll give you a ring. Good on you, Mick. Good on you. Now, what are you doing in Canada? I'm an ag pilot. Well, I'm semi-retired, but I just come here for their summer and do their spraying. We ferry the aeroplanes from Saskatchewan across to Quebec and we spray the spruce trees for their government for a 32-day contract. Then we come back and we do the spray season back here where we're based. What do you spray the spruce trees for? Believe it or not, they call it the spruce budworms. It's just a bug that eats the trees. And the spruce trees is a huge lumber industry here in Canada. And if they don't spray them, well, they'll, they'll eventually kill the trees. There's 40-odd aeroplanes that go from Western Canada and fly across there. There's already some that, that are from there, so there's probably 50 or 60 60 aeroplanes on the thing for 32 days. The thing that's happening here in Canada has been happening for a while is that they've gone big, quick into turbine aeroplanes and they don't have enough experienced guys, so it makes it easy for us to get a job. I'm in southwestern Saskatchewan, go to Quebec, 1,500 nautical miles, we fly over there and back. The weather's a pretty big issue. You don't have many places to land over there. It's sort of a long way between places to land and all in between is just trees and lakes. Good on you, Mick. All right, good to talk to you. There's a radio show that Australians all know. If you're rich or you ain't got a cracker. They tell stories so grand of this vast, timeless land, and they call it Sunday with Macca. They all call it Sunday with Macca. Yeah, they all call it Sunday with Macca. Get on with it, Macca. I will, Dig. Good morning and welcome to the program. Uh, interesting uh, weekend. It's the big freeze weekend. And my, well, I think he's my mate, Wacker Williams, he sent me a little note on Facebook. He says, G'day, Ian. Mate, you have to watch this fantastic, inspiring speech by Neil Danaher about doing your best in life with the cards dealt you. See you, says Pete Williams. He's from Farnborough Heights. And I watched it, uh, Pete. It's just... Well, inspirational is an overused word, but it's just wonderful. You need to, um, you need to, we all get down and I get down and you need to people around you or other people to put you right again. And that's what happened. That's what life's all about. I think you have your, everybody has a downtime, some worse, worse than others, but it's the people around you. Um, and You've got to look for them because you're not surrounded by them all the time. You've got to look for the people in your life that make a difference to you. And uh, when you're in downtimes, you search them out. Well, Neil Danner has, he's just, he's just wonderful. We talked to him, Neil, a couple of weeks ago, a um, couple of months ago, a couple of years ago, I think. But the big freeze weekends where they all go off the, the MCG yesterday and they go into the icy water and <laughs> and they all wear the beanies and they're raising money for M&D and things like that. And it's just, he's just an inspiration. On the program this morning, we'll talk to a runner, we'll talk to you and uh, we'll just get it done. It's wonderful. Like this from Michael Jordan. Michael says, Mac, I wouldn't miss your program for quids. Risa Hubert Wilkins, I heard the discussion on him this morning. Now, Sir Hubert Wilkins is a bloke most of us don't know. The Last Explorer was written by Simon Nasht. It's a book about Sir Hubert, and he, done, he did all sorts of things. 
he was a, an explorer and all sorts of things and an inventor. But anyway, listen to Michael Jordan's uh, letter, as he said. Um, I heard your discussion this morning. I'm born and bred South Australian crow eater. Sir Hubert is a South Australian and has not been fully recognised for his amazing inventions. I thought you might like to know the following. In 1935, he invented the first commercial washing machine for housewives to give them an improvement on the laborious laundry copper boiler outside the back door and the mangle used to wring out washed clothes. He was a great inventor. He invented the first electric washing machine. It was made in Adelaide during Adelaide's heydays of manufacturing. So sad all of that has come to an end. It was called the Wilkins Servant, later abbreviated to the Wilkinson Service. Remember that? Yeah, I remember the Wilkins Service. So that was named after Hubert Wilkins. Then for the gentleman, dependent on the old cutthroat razor, he invented the original thin disposable blade razor, being a master of the forge and ironmongery. Originally marketed under the name of Wilkins Sword, Wilkins Sword, based on historical times when men carried swords, had them so sharp they could shave with them, later marketed as Wilkinson Sword. The idea was later pinched by Gillette, then by Schick, then by Bick and others. Thought you might like to know. I know his original home on the seafront at Hallett's Cove, a little down the coast from Brighton in Adelaide, a beautiful home now preserved. I'm a true blue South Australian, says Michael Jordan, in spite of having lived in most capital cities around Australia at one time or another. I sadly miss Adelaide and it, all its attractions, such as the great Groat Street Markets and Popeye on the Torrens, in spite of being an old goat now, but I seem to have most of my marble still. I can get emotional seeing TV docos on Adelaide and South Australia. The Adelaide Hills are still home to me, says Mike Jordan. Isn't that nice? See, and yeah, you can grab hold of that book. I think you'll still find it around the place. Um, all sorts of things this morning. Quickly, g'day, Macca, from the lifeguards at Mooloolaba, Sunshine Coast. My son usually listens, says, that was from, who's that from? Brett Williams. Thanks, Brett. Maureen Smith says, um, my son usually listens to you and he's from Adelaide, but he's in, presently working in Cobar, New South Wales, and missing his family. Cheer him up with this message. Say, hi, Adam. Maureen, done. Um, Josephine Savas says, have listened for many years. Would love to know where you'll be between the 12th of July and 30th of August. Would love to meet you, says Josie and Art and Laney and Johnny Jinks. I don't know. Um, around the place. Josephine, just have to keep listening. I'll, I'll let you know. And quickly, finally, on dancing, Wendy Parker says, we played some lovely music. George Strait, remember what um, Quentin was in last week and he said he was going to the Nashville Country Music um, you know, Awards and stuff. And I played a George Strait song and it was just that sort of dancing, just great. Anyway, Wendy says, dances at beautiful old country halls on lovely wood floors require sawdust. Dancers just float around. Women sit on the outside and many come in from, from a quiet beer out the back at, of the institute or hall and have the guts to ask for a dance. Oh, the memories. <laughs> well, some of them have, some of them don't ask. You get one knockback or two and that's the end of the night for you, really. They go back out and drink beer. Um, listen, you might remember... Oh, did I put that? What did I do with that? I can't remember. Um, I'm just looking for a little grab I did, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Um, it's just, a, yeah, I'll just play this for you. Um, we'll talk to you this morning. Um, g'day, this is Macca. Morning, Macca. Dr. Ross, I know that voice. <laughs> yes, one and the same. How are you, mate? Very, very well. Brilliant, brilliant day here in Tamworth. 
about 11 degrees, clear skies. What great are you, day for, what are you doing in town? Great day for rugby. Oh, I see. What uh, are you... It's the Country Rugby Championship, so I'm up here with the Central West Blue Bulls. Uh-huh. So, because Dr. Ross, ladies and gentlemen, is from um, Bathurst, but you're in town with Country Rugby. Yeah. It's um, the New South Wales titles, mm. and uh, we have men's, women's, and cults um, all playing today. Men are in the final, women are in the final, and the cults are somewhere a little bit down the tree. Uh-huh. And uh, is, it's obviously started um, on Friday, I'd say. No, no, it started yesterday. Uh-huh. They all, uh, men had one match, women had two, and the Colts had three. And um, they all did well. It's been a great carnival so far, not many injuries, which is very pleasing. Uh, but I guess the, the focus is on getting all the country rugby players together and uh, A, having some good football, but also having a good time together and a little bit of what's necessary these days, and it's a bit of male bonding and a bit of reassurance that all's right, right in the world, despite the way the, the countryside is at present. That's right. Um, we were ta- I was talking to um, Quentin again last week, Quentin, we, and he was in talking about uh, they were doing some bull riding and he's going over to the American Country Music Awards, but we were talking about pressure on kids for some, uh, I forget what it was, but he said, you know, he doesn't like the pressure on that must be on young kids. The further up the ladder they go, um, especially in playing, you know, first grade and representative football and things like that, um, must be a lot of pressure on kids who are nineteen and twenty and twenty-one. We don't know that because we never went through that. But uh, especially these, I don't know what it is about the times we live in, Doctor Ross. Is it just reported more? Is it or are there more pressures? Oh, there's enormous pressure these days, and I think that's one of the things that's good about this tournament is that. Country rugby is not a pressure uh, cooker environment. Um, it's just as likely if you'd knocked a bloke off his feet to give him a hand up uh, at this sort of carnival. Uh, sure, they want, they, they'd like to win, but a loss isn't a disaster. And the boys who didn't do so well yesterday might have gone out on the turps with each other last night. Uh, they'll get up this morning and play another match. They might be a bit dusty, but they'll enjoy their rugby. It's, it's not cheap stations, uh, depending on the result. Uh-huh. Exactly. Um, Dr. Ross, uh, this is Mental Health Week, isn't it? Uh, yeah, well, Men's Health Week. Men's Health Week, sorry. Yeah. yeah. And mental health is our priority these days. Society as a whole is getting just so pressured, as you say. And it's not only in sport, it's right across the board. The economic pressures, the social pressures to look good, conform, etc., like that are incredible. And this is... I think one healthy outlet is sport. And I think the, the components of a healthy mental life are, are just in your living. Some of it is you know, what you do day to day and having a satisfaction and a pride in yourself. But you also need to eat well. You need to exercise regularly. You need to get good sleep. And I think if people start to concentrate on those basics, we'll see a lot less mental health issues. Uh, but it's getting back to those basics that's so important. Yeah, and it's very, um, you know... It's sobering when you look around and see the things and friends, and we've all had friends who have taken their lives, and uh, mm. many of them. I don't know if it's getting any better. I don't know what the statistics are, um, if it's getting any worse or, or whatever, but I think there's a lot more pressure, and I think it's reported more too, Dr. Ross. I don't know what effect that has, but it must have some effect. It does, and in enclosed rural communities, it's, it's devastating the, the effect of a youth suicide, uh, the loss of the potential and so on like that. 
But I think um, the important thing is that whilst the loss is felt by the community, the support for the family and friends of anybody who has taken their life uh, is a lot better than it is in the city. Um, where we don't know our neighbours, it's, it's so much more to deal with when you're on your own. Dr Ross, good luck. You're not playing, of course, are you? <laughs> uh, no, my playing days finished many, many years ago. <laughs> I, uh, I never had a glorious career, but I certainly enjoy helping look after the boys while they're in the paddock. Good on you. Lovely to talk to you. Yeah. And, okay. and uh, take care. Thank you. And uh, have a good day, everybody. And uh, think about those mental health issues. Good on you, Dr. Ross. Goodbye. Bye. Interesting response to uh, the interview last week with Mark Hendricks about A Guide to Climbing Airs Rock. That was his book. This from Kerry Little. Secretary Sutherland Shire Reconciliation. Hi, Macca. I'm a long-time listener and love your show and appreciate that you interview people of interest and review books of interest. Last Sunday, you interviewed an author who wrote about his right to climb Uluru, and I missed his name and book. I was alarmed to hear his science, which he argued was more important than the superstition of the Indigenous people. Carter Judah National Park Board decided unanimously to ban climbing Uluru starting in 2019 the 34th anniversary of the return of Uluru to the traditional owners. The board, made up of eight traditional owners and three representatives from national parks, made the decision after consulting with the wider and a new community, who overwhelmingly supported the ban. The entirety of Uluru is a sacred area, and the site where the climb begins is also a sacred men's area. Senior traditional owner and chairman of the board, Sammy Wilson, said, Some people in tourism and government, for example, might have been saying we need to keep it open. But it's not their law that lies in this land, he said. In fact, under Northern Territory legislation, sacred sites, including Uluru, have special protections, and a serious breach of the Sacred Sites Act can lead to penalties of more than $60,000 and two years in jail. This author's view echoes the perception of the colonisers 250 years ago who held a belief in their superiority in science, economy and religion. I find the incredible irony of his right claiming it's his country and open to all. He denies that this part of the country has been returned to the traditional owners and their ancient spirituality and beliefs of sacred areas is superstition. And even more perplexing is that this is the same country where the Uluru Statement from the Heart was given to the whole Australian nation as a gift to build a bridge between the ancient past and a hopeful future. In the interest of fairness, as you always demonstrate, could you invite one of the authors of the vast library of books written by credible anthropologists, archaeologists and historians to give the other view? Many thanks for your kind consideration. Well, I will do that, uh, Kerry, but you've given a very good view yourself. Kerry Little, Secretary of the Sutherland Shire Reconciliation. This from Graham from Brisbane. Dear Ian, I think your listeners may be interested in an explanation of why climbing Uluru will cease in October. In 58... 1958, both Ayers Rock and Mount Olga, now Katajuta, were excised from an Aboriginal reserve to form the Ayers Rock-Mount Olga National Park. The park's name was changed to Uluru and Katajuta National Park in 1977. In 1985, after more than 35 years of campaigning, the Ananyu people were recognised as the traditional owners of the park and handed back the deeds to their homelands. Ananyu owned the land containing Uluru and Katajuta and leased the land to the Australian government. 
When I visited the National Park, the first thing I noticed was a statement at the base of the climbing chain from the traditional owners requesting people not to climb the mountain. One look at the climb was sufficient to convince me to respect the wishes of the traditional owners. I wondered how many people would climb the mountain without the assistance of the chain. On further investigation, I learnt that it is the intention of the owners and managers to stop people climbing Uluru, remove the chain, when the number of people climbing Uluru was less than 20% of the numbers of visitors to Uluru. I can only assume that this is now the case, remembering that the owners of the land have every right to impose this condition. I want to make it quite clear that climbing Uluru is not the only reason to visit the National Park. I found it fascinating and enjoyable to walk around Uluru and Katajuta and to visit Kings Canyon. On recollection, I think the most important reason for visiting Uluru is that the visit opened my eyes to the beauty of this great unknown part of our homeland, simply described as the centre. It was a life-changing experience and one that I'd recommend for all Australians, says Graham from Brisbane. Enjoy your show. Thanks, Graham. And finally and quickly from Denver, Denver Kanowski. I listened to your guests who advocated free and unlimited access to climbing Uluru and I'd like to share my experience in 1990. With my family, I spent a few days around the rock. I was at the base in the early morning and had a yarn with a group of Aboriginal women who were sitting watching the trail of tourists scampering up the incline. One of them gestured toward the adventurers and said, Minga. I asked her what Minga was. She replied, Ants. She elaborated by explaining that the previous wave of Aboriginal immigrants to this area were called Minga. These people had disrespectfully climbed the rock. When they were replaced by the Ananya people, the rock became a recognised sacred place. She said, how would you feel if we came to England and started climbing all over the St Paul's Cathedral? The vast majority of climbers race out of the bus, scamper up to the top, take a photo, I'm sure there would be lots of selfies these days, quickly back down to the bus and off to the next box to be ticked off the travel itinerary. These things you see when you spend a bit of time in a place. We chose to walk around the rock, one of the most profound experiences. The scamperers will never appreciate the majesty of this place. Thanks for your program. It's one of the few places left in the country where people can feel that their opinion is heard. Says Denver Kanowski. Denver, that's a nice thing to say, and it's also troubling. Good morning, this is Macca, 1300 700 222. My next guest has to shoot through very quickly, but just to refresh your memory... Oh, g'day, Macca, it's Anne calling. Hi, Anne. Uh, I'm out in Centennial Park and I'm jogging at the moment, so I hope you can hear me okay. I can. Yeah, I heard the lady talk about swimming the English Channel. It's always been a bit of a dream of mine, but in my old age, I won't call it old age, but um, I've taken up distance running and I'm off to run the London Marathon in a few weeks' time. So I thought I'd just ring in and tell you that. That's the story. That's Anne. Anne Boyd, she's my guest this morning. I, was, I wanted to meet her, and here she is. Good morning, Anne. How are you? Oh, good day, Macca. It's a bit different to be here without the puffing Billy. <laughs> so. She's a runner. Interesting. And uh, we've got lots of things to talk about. You've, you've got a five-hour run today. Why, why are you running five hours today? What's, what's going on in your life? Oh, well, it's a, a peak run, Macca. Um, I decided after London, um, it was a bit of a tough run in London. It was a very congested course, brilliantly organised, I might say, um, and wonderful crowd support, but very difficult run because mm. you just could never get into a rhythm. And I came home and I thought, oh, I'm frustrated because I just don't feel I did my 
proper run there. Mm. So, well, look, got the Australian Masters Marathon Championships coming up on the Gold Coast in a month, in two months' time. That was then. Uh-huh. Uh, and that's four weeks now. Four and, weeks. Um, yes, four weeks. So I thought, well, I've still got some marathon conditioning in my body. I might as well take it up to the Gold Coast and see what I can do up there. So I decided to do that. And so now this week and next week are my two peak runs. So I've got to try and get more than 30 kilometres today and also next Sunday. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm talking to Anne Boyd. She's a runner. She's 73. She looks fit. Um, she's not carrying a, I don't know what a body mass uh, index would be, but it's pretty uh, pretty good looking at her. I've never met her before. You, you were saying to me while um, uh, there was some music on before that um, you were inspired by the, was it uh, a lady who ran um, those marathons every day for, um, yeah, I, we reported on that at the time. I think she ran, yeah. what? 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 marathons in a row. Every day she ran a mar- ran a marathon. More than that, Macca. She and her husband, they're Murrays. Uh, their name is, I think their surname is Murrays, and I think they're probably New Zealanders, but they now live, as far as I know, they live down south, uh, down near Melbourne. Mm. Uh, but they ran every day for 365 days, a whole God year, a whole year, a whole year of running a marathon every single day. I don't know how on earth they did that. And they were in their 60s, I think possibly even uh, late 60s, actually, but certainly 60s when they did it. And I was just beginning to start my running journey then. So it would have been about about six years ago. Uh-huh. And uh, I, I actually remember sitting on a, a ferry going across the harbour here in Sydney <clears throat> and um, listening to their story. I thought, wow, that is so awesome. At that stage, I was still staggering, you know, stag- struggling to get through 5K. So... Um, the thought of running a marathon was pretty inspiring. Yeah. Now you're running five hours today because you're going to the uh, the marathon um, in on the Gold Coast. Yeah, yeah. So is that how long a marathon takes you? About five hours? Yeah, yeah. I'd love to do a sub five, but I haven't done it yet. Um, mm. Still trying, still trying. Haven't given up. Mm. I usually run somewhere between five fifteen and 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 uh, and five forty five. What does it do and what has it done to your life? Do you think? Um, I know you started later in life. You uh, and as I said. My um, regret, and it's not a regret, it's just that I would have loved to have been able to run fast. I mean, when you see people running fast, I mean, you know, 10, whatever for the for the 100. Um, but um, you weren't a runner at school and I really wasn't. I could run a bit, but yeah. But what, what's it done for your life, do you think? Well, it's been transformational. I mean, like you, Macca, um, I would love to have been able to run fast. I could not understand why I couldn't. You know, yeah. all the other girls in my class could run 100 metres faster <laughs> than I could. The only thing I could win was the walk, <laughs> 400 metres around the oval. And, uh, so, so I would love to be able to run fast. But as I got older, um, um, it, well, inspired by really uh, negative reason I was putting on too much weight. And um, I just thought, oh, I don't want to be a fat old grandma. So um, I went on a serious weight management program and as a consequence lost about 24 kilos, but only managed that by taking up a bit of jogging in my exercise physiology. Mm. And the jogging led from, you know, three, three kilometres, continuous jog to five kilometres, a bit of competitive running, and I just was hooked as soon as I got in a race and discovered that actually... I couldn't run fast, but I could run for quite a long time. Uh, and it was a lot of fun, and it just became more and more fun. I became more and more addicted. <laughs> yeah, it's like, like the, I remember talking when Betty Cuthbert passed, and I talked to some of the ladies who'd gone to school with her and others who'd run with her at you know the local club, Western Suburbs, I think was a club. And one lady said, said um, when we were kids, she said, we'd all run down to the fence and back, and, and as we ran down, we'd meet Betty Cuthbert on the way back. 
it's like she was so far in front of them. And um, uh, yeah, anyway, um, so you're doing that. But um, the other thing that you mentioned to me last week, or it was the week before, I can't remember, that you're out at Alice Springs. Um, because you're you're doing an opera now. Your background is what music? Is that the story? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I was professor of music for 27 years at the University of Sydney, mm. uh, but I'd been in academic uh, music uh, really pretty much all my life from the time I graduated. And uh, my main my main beef was as a composer. I've always written music since I was a tiny little kid, right in the really? back of Longreach. Really? Yeah, 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 yeah. Growing up as a little kid on Manaroo, my sister Helen um, sent me a recorder as a as a present, birthday present, I think, wow. at about six. I was about six years old, and by then I could read, and I taught myself to play the recorder. And I just thought, you know, we just did. We didn't. I didn't know, but I just thought you know, it was natural that you'd want to write something for an instrument you played a bit. So that's what I started doing. So that's how it all began yeah yeah i was talking to billy field um a couple of weeks ago billy wrote a couple of songs bad habits that one and um, i went in love you went in love with me and some nice song but he he said that the thing he wishes is that little kids when kids are kids <laughs> to be involved in music some way mm-hmm. playing music mm-hmm. it's a wonderful thing you can see the joy in little kids faces mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. uh when they've got to play something or play in a band or whatever they have to do hit a hit a Stick like a yeah a rhythm stick or whatever. It's just a wonderful thing, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Well, the thing that I worry a bit about is that there's too much emphasis on kids playing other people's music, but actually, kids love to make up their own music. Yeah, and yeah. You put a few percussion instruments or just some objects around a child and say, "Well, let's make some music from making different sounds," and off they go and they have such fun. Well, I guess I picked that up as a child myself, just way out in the bush. It was just a natural thing to do. Mm. Little kids do that, you know. Now, um, you're, you mentioned Olive Pink and you're writing a, an opera. Is that right for Olive yeah. Pink? Tell us quickly about that. Yeah. Well, I, when I, I decided before I retired that I wanted to write a series of operas on uh, Australian women, pioneering Australian women who worked with Aboriginal people because I have a very high regard for Aboriginal culture, have always, always loved Aboriginal people. And um, I wanted to write a piece, some pieces that, that featured white women or non-Indigenous women, or they, were, they are actually all white women that I'm thinking about, uh, but who gave up most of their lives for living and working with Aboriginal people. And the first one I did was Daisy Bates. Oh, right, yeah, out at uh, Uldea. Out at Uldea, yeah. that's right. It was called The opera was called Daisy Bates at Uldea, and we put it on about six years ago in the Sydney wow. Conservatorium of Music. And it was a lot of fun, amazing research. I mean, I actually thought of you lots when I was out on those journeys too, because there I was going out to the sand hills of Uldea, and I thought, oh, I'd love to phone up Macca from here, but I never did, so I didn't have the car. I was a bit too shy. <laughs> and, um, anyway, um, uh, that was great. And so we got that on, that show on, and we had some wonderful Aboriginal people who worked with me on that show and in that show. And um, I decided, well, the next one, is, who will I do next? Well, uh, Olive Pink had been out to meet Daisy Bates at Aldea. She'd gone out for a holiday to paint the wildflowers, the desert really? wildflowers. Uh-huh. Yeah. And uh, um, Daisy was a big, uh, uh, a big influence on her. But Olive was already interested in Aboriginal people. She'd, um, she'd back in Sydney, right, in the, even in the late 20s, she was interested in Indigenous people and she was interested in the injustice she felt was being dealt out to them. 
Um, so that's something she carried through in her life. But, but I think Daisy Bates persuaded her that getting some qualification in anthropology would be a good idea. So Olive comes back to Sydney and enrolls as a mature age student at the University of Sydney under Elkin, um, Professor Elkin, yeah. to study Aboriginal people. Made his life absolute hell, I might say. Because <laughs> one of the fun things in the opera, one of the fun lines in the opera is that uh, Elkin describes her her emotionality exceeding her rationality. <laughs> she was really very difficult student, very difficult. But um, but anyway, she's a lot of fun. She's a great operatic character. And then she, when she goes back to Alice Springs, she doesn't have a lot of success in anthropology. She meets up with a bloke called Stralo, um, who was a mis- son yeah. of a missionary out there to Hermansburg. And uh, Stralo um, uh, basically uh, stopped her getting lots of grant money and things. And uh, poor old poor old Olive, well, she wasn't poor. She was nothing poor about Olive, except she was poor. <laughs> nothing poor in spirit, though. She had more spirit than possibly any woman I've ever encountered. When I say encounter, encounter in my imagination, of course. Yeah. But you live with these characters. You live with these characters. I've been living with her now for about six years. And so we're getting this opera together on her, and the people in Alice Springs have got solidly behind it. We're putting it on in her garden, the Olive Pink Botanical Gardens. Yep. And I've discovered massive local talent in Alice Springs itself. So we're having <laughs> local singers um, in the main parts and uh, – Importing a couple of people. We're importing Riley Lee from Sydney, a shakuhachi player, mm. also a marathon runner, I might say, but <laughs> that's not the bond between us. I've just always loved Japanese music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, played, <laughs> he's played quite a lot of my work in the past, so there we've worked go. a lot together. And uh, we're also uh, bringing uh, a fellow from um, uh, Simone Dehan from Western Australia who's a trombonist, an improvising trombonist. <laughs> I'll have to. When, when this so, is so you're going to come. You're going to come, aren't you, Mecca? It's going to be in Alice Springs, isn't it? It's going to be in Alice Springs. Oh, I dear. think something what? like the next, not this coming September, September 2020. I'm still writing lots of music, oh, lots and lots and lots of music. Come. Please come. come, please come. It's going to be absolutely awesome. And the Central Australian Aboriginal Women's Choir are our other principal partner. They've come on board with their wonderful uh, director, Morris Stewart. I'm talking to Anne Boyd. She's got to go. I've got to take this call quickly, apparently. G'day, this is Macca. Hello, Macca. G'day. This is Brian Burton. We're at um, Alice Springs at the start of the Fink race. Oh, the Fink, that starts in five minutes or so, doesn't it? Yes, it's very, it's very soon. Yeah. Um, we've been here since last Wednesday, watched the prologue yesterday. Um, and what's your interest in the race, Brian? Oh, it's my first time here and um, I just love dirt racing. So, so this um, is the race that goes from... Uh, out to the Fink River and returns, is that right? That's right. It goes today um, out to Fink and then they stay overnight and then come back tomorrow morning. That's right. And lots of people there, I'll bet, because so often we get calls from people coming from Victoria, whatever, either to race or to watch it. So a big crowd there. There's a big crowd. Um, the road out to the Fink, the Bitumen Road, yeah, um, it's just full of lights at the moment, um, travelling out. So... And they've been going all day yesterday and this morning. And uh, it's just a great thing to be here. A great thing to be a part of, Brian. Yeah, where are you from, Brian? We're from Bay in Queensland. All oh, right. We've just been travelling um, for 12,400 kilometres um, to here. And we have to go home about another 3,000 kilometres. So we rendezvoused with the race and, and um, we're enjoying it very much. I bet you are. All right, Brian. What's the weather like out there? Cool? The weather in the last previous two mornings was zero degrees, and this morning I think it's about four degrees. So you'll, you'll um, get that out in the desert, won't you? You'll get that. 
you do, Maka. Yeah, yeah, you sure do. And we love listening to your program. Um, every you. time we're on air on Sunday, we listen to you. So Good you on do you. a great job. Good on you, Brian, and enjoy the fink. I'll get there one day. Good on you. Yeah, do that, Maka. It's a great thing. Good on you. Bye, mate. Bye. Uh, there you go. That's what people are doing. My guest this morning is Anne Boyd. Look at the time. Anne's got to go running uh, shortly. Um, I know Anne would like to um, congratulate uh, Ash Barty. What a great win. Oh, what a little champion, eh? Real little trooper. I mean, Grace, she's so proud to be Australian. She's an ordinary good. kid, you know, and she's gone out there from, um, from, 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 uh, from Queensland and she's taken on the world and she's just done it. She's marvellous. Real champion. Real yeah. champion. And Margaret Court was the last one to win the French Open. 1973. 73. Yep. And yep. what did Margaret Court say? She said that... She uh, said she, she thinks she'll go a long way because she's so calm on court and she said she reminded of herself when she was a youngster. Yeah, she didn't yeah. seem to have uh, a lot of nerves. Whereas uh, Yvonne, who won um, in in 97, a lady rang this morning and said uh, she remembers the great reception that Yvonne Gulligan got, I think in Narandra, uh, when she won um, Wimbledon. And yeah, and yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Yvonne seemed to get very nervous at times, didn't she? So, uh, I think that's the whole secret of all sport is is to be able to... Just be cool, calm and collected, but it's not easy to do, is it? No, it takes a lot of discipline, a lot of discipline. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, yeah, uh, yeah. And, uh, yeah so, and she's on to Wimbledon now. I assume she'll go to Wimbledon. And One guesses. Who knows? Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe she's going to be a champ on all the surfaces. But what really impresses me is she's a newcomer on, on clay, yeah. which is amazing. She said she's learning every game. Oh, wow, what a champion. <laughs> yeah, look, there's so many things to talk to you about, but... It's it's lovely to meet you finally, and um, you um, inspirational. Me. As I said, I think um, you're 73. You don't mind me saying how old you are, and I think it's part of the um, part of the whole thing. And running's obviously yeah. kept you young and fit, and yep. and I think uh, that's the message of Dr. Ross and also Neil Danaher, who's yeah. got that terrible disease, and yet yeah. soldiers on and. You've got to do that, haven't you? It, you? You do. And it's also great for mental health as well, really great for mental health because there's something about getting out there physically. Mm. Yes, you're in your own space a lot. I was interested when you said you get a bit down sometimes, what you do here, and I can see being in the studio. Yeah, you're talking to all of Australia, but mm. you're on your own basically doing mm. it with a couple of good friends at the back here that are helping <laughs> you. But, um, but yeah, and and one does have the downtimes and in what i do as a composer is a creative industries there's a lot of emotion involved including depression but running gets that out of your system really does you keep you keep ringing us on the road when you're puffing and panting it's just fantastic <laughs> that's what i love it it's live radio see so people are doing stuff and Boyd, lovely to meet you call us from the gold coast listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.